0: Uh, welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Colin for our new show, Unruly, with Ryan and Rob. This is your co host, Ryan Knight, and I'm excited to be joined by our other co host, Rob Bermudez. How's everyone doing? And our guest today is NASA climate scientist, Peter Kalmus. Peter, welcome to Unruly.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ryan and Rob. And I should say that I'm speaking on my own behalf, of course.
0: Absolutely. Um, So, look, this week, uh, you, along with 1200 other scientists in 26 nations, engaged in civil disobedience to save the Earth uh, from the corrupt governments, financial institutions and corporate politicians who continue to expand fossil fuel, fossil fuels, despite the destruction that they're causing to our planet. Uh, you chained yourself to the Chase Building in downtown Los Angeles, and were arrested by hundred police in riot gear.
1: Uh, at least hundred, yeah.
0: At least a hundred. You know, it, the first thing I thought of, Peter, when I saw the story, and we know each other. We've had you, we had you on our our previous show uh, last year. And but like, if we lived in a just world, the police would be arresting the fossil fuel executives and both corrupt corporate parties who continue to give them subsidies. But instead, they're arresting the scientists who are trying to save our planet. It's mind boggling. Peter, what's the message that you and your fellow scientists uh, are trying to send to the world uh, with these righteous acts of protest? And what was the significance of holding your protest at Morgan Chase?
1: Yeah, the, the main message is that we're, we're dead serious about what we're saying. We are heading toward planetary catastrophe. And I know for most people, it seems like the world's still more or less normal, like the heat waves are worse, the wildfires are worse. Every now and then there's a flood that kills people in their basements, but, you know, sea level rise, like, oh, we'll lose Miami. Um, It is, this is just the tiniest beginning of what we're going to start to experience over the next few years. And as the years tick by, if we keep burning fossil fuels the way we are now and keep expanding the fossil fuel industry when we need to be ramping it down and ending it as quickly as we can, no one, no, we all realize we can't end it overnight, but I really think we should be thinking in terms of ending it in terms of years as opposed to decades. That's how serious uh, I believe the climate emergency really is, and more and more climate scientists, it's, it's, it's hard even for scientists to take the facts to take these graphs to take the projections from that we're, you know for what's going to happen to the future and to translate that into real emotions into a real acceptance of what that means and how we should act it's hard even for climate scientists cuz you know there's the social norms around us that like oh it's normal to burn fossil fuels it's normal to jump on an airplane and you know fly across the ocean for a couple of days like those norms are so strong They affect climate scientists, too. And it's just weird because the science says, like, yeah, the way we're living right now, the way society is heading, we're going towards a cliff of death and destruction, which is almost unimaginable. And we can talk about hundreds of millions of migrants coming up from the global south. But really, I think the bottom line is loss of ecosystems around the world, ecosystems that we depend on. We're part of the web of life and really collapse of human civilization and potentially the deaths of billions of people. Now, I personally believe this could still be avoided. Uh, And the thing that really, really terrifies me is that despite the IPCC Working Group 3 coming out and despite UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres basically saying straight up, we're heading towards collapse. We have to change, right? There's some amazing quotes from him on on Monday. Um, he He basically called the activists that are engaging in civil disobedience, heroes. And he said the real harmful radicals, the ones we should be watching out for, just like you said, are the fossil fuel executives and the world leaders that aren't acting like that coming from the UN secretary general. So we are not exaggerating at all. It's just um, society hasn't realized how bad it is yet because there's this kind of lag, right? We burn fossil fuels now that locks in hotter temperatures and then the climate impacts take some time to catch up with us, right? So it can still seem relatively normal, even though we're on this catastrophic trajectory. And the second big problem is, the media just isn't reporting it. So a couple of days ago, uh, the Tuesday after the IPCC Working Group 3 report came out, the the LA Times, it was just incredible to me. It said like, world scientists uh, say, um, we're heading towards an unlivable future, like we're, we're about to lose the Earth, right? You would think that that would be the top front, uh, front page headline. It was this tiny little box. It said World <laughs> A3, and it was a little tiny box in the bottom right-hand uh, corner of the LA Times. I was just astounded by that.
2: So, Peter, I have a question for you. I think we people who have rational minds can see that this is something that needs to be dealt with. Where do you think the balance lies between innovation and consumption? Because I I feel like there's a lot of people, especially in California, that are driving Teslas, and they say, "Well, you know, that's that's we're just going to buy ourselves luxury vehicles, and that'll fix the climate catastrophe." How how important is adjusting the way we consume products, adjusting the way, um, like you said, unnecessarily flying for a day or two just to to cross large swaths of land? What percentage would you say should we focus on altering our consumption methods versus trying to innovate ways of either carbon capture technology or, or something to increase efficiency in the energy sector?
1: Well, it's fascinating. The Working Group 3 report actually spelled out some of that stuff with numbers. Um, but so you, everyone should read that report and try to understand it. I read through like an early version of it once. I have to read through the finalized version again. Um, I haven't had a chance. to. I, I want to do a, a thread on Twitter and sort of just like go over the, the sort of facts and Sort of statements that I find super interesting because I was, when I read it the first time through, I was wrapped. But anyway, I think it's incredibly dangerous to have this attitude that, you know, electric cars are basically enough. Um, I also think it's incredibly dangerous to have any faith whatsoever in um, carbon uh, direct air capture technologies. Um, These technologies don't exist at scale yet and they may never exist at scale. They're fundamentally different from a technology like solar panels. So solar panels, it doesn't take energy to run them. You put a solar panel up and it produces energy for you from the sun. Um, Carbon capture, direct air capture technology, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to run, which means it's always going to be tremendously expensive to try to scale it up. No matter how good the technology gets, there's a certain limit, you're always going to need a certain amount of energy to run that stuff. You're essentially, the reason we burn fossil fuels is because it releases a tremendous amount of energy that's been stored up in those fossil fuels, which are basically old plants, which were photosynthesizing millions of years ago, right? And then, so it's basically stored up solar energy from plants, but you burn that stuff it releases a tremendous amount of energy. It's literally powered our entire global economy for like the last 200 years, right? So that's why we burn it. It's, um, that's why we're, we kind of turn a blind eye to like the 8 million people per year who die just from the air pollution, let alone the climate breakdown that it's causing. So to run that process in reverse by doing direct air capture takes a tremendous amount of energy. So that was one of the worst parts of this Working Group 2 report. For some reason, the IPCC... You know, especially the working group three. They they've got this really tough job, basically, right, where they they they're they're looking at the end of the world essentially, and they're trying to build this bridge to world leaders and policymakers and to the politically feasible. And so they that that's such an you know. And it's really hard for them to just say we have to end the fossil fuel industry in a few years. (laughs) We like straight up, that's what we need to do. So they kind of grasp that the straw of direct air capture, and it's still to some extent in the Working Group Three report. Though I think it's been somewhat reduced from like past reports. In my mind, like it would be fantastic if it happened, but it's incredibly foolish to bet the entire planet. Um, it's it's a risk that you would not take in any other sector of your life. No corporation would take that kind of risk, and because we don't, it's like vaporware. We don't know if we can do it, and yet we're betting the entire planet on it. It's it's crazy. So as far as planes go, I I want to be really clear. You know, I've um, ten years ago or so, I kind of had this theory of change where I was like, well. You know, there isn't much of a climate movement. Remember, this is 10 years ago. So there's, there is a climate movement now. But back then, there was nothing, hardly anything. So I'm like, well, maybe if I... And, and I didn't like burning fossil fuels because I knew directly, I knew the linkages between burning it, global heating, and, you know, my kids' future. So it felt disgusting to me to burn this stuff. So I mean, I'll try to ramp it down. And maybe if I ramp, ramp it down, other, it'll, like, inspire other people to do that too. And I didn't know, like, what fraction of people would kind of like be interested in that. So it was an experiment that I was doing. Results of that experiment have come back and it's a really depressingly small number of people that would ever consider like voluntarily ramping down their own emissions. So it's kind of a non-starter. So I don't expect to solve this whatsoever by people voluntarily changing things. But even people who fly a lot, I would like them to start asking, you know, tweeting to, to, to start a movement for like basically reducing and eventually eliminating commercial aviation. That's how much of an emergency I think this is. The last thing I'll say in response to your question is that we're at the point right now where we're already experiencing deadly climate impacts. Um, Every additional ton of CO2 that's emitted into the atmosphere, every gallon of gas that's burned literally makes climate breakdown worse. So all the heat waves, all the fires, the agricultural, the, the crop failures, everything is gonna continue to get worse as long as we keep burning fossil fuels. So that, there's a kind of risk reward or kind of like risk management equation here that we have to start thinking about, which is that um, we can keep burning all this fossil fuel, like we're still increasing globally, Quite rapidly, than year on year, how much fossil fuel we burn. Uh, there's a few nations of the world that are starting to actually it looks like really decrease, but only a few. That was one of the, high, like the one of the silver linings of the working group to report. But um, you know, I that, I think we need to switch now into a climate emergency mode to actually save lives, which might mean ramping things down faster than we expected because it's a life or death situation, right? So if we keep flying, for example. And we keep having frequent flyer programs and whatnot. That's a clear signal that society is not taking this emergency seriously, right? They're saying, well, hmm, climate breakdown, livable planet on one hand versus being able to fly on the other hand. We're going to pick flying. That's a clear signal if someone's thinking that way, that they don't really accept that the climate emergency is real, right? Like if your house was on fire, you wouldn't like keep reading the newspaper and drinking your coffee. You'd get the hell out of your house. Um, But Right now we're acting like the house really isn't on fire. Like the scientists are saying, oh, it's on fire, but everyone is continuing to read their newspaper and drink their coffee calmly and not uh, acting like it's a real emergency.
0: Well, and I read part of the IPCC report and the, basically the top line, uh, the top line finding that, that stuck out to me was they were really clear that that governments must immediately start to phase out fossil fuels Uh, If we're going to avert the worst consequences of the climate crisis now, literally
1: right now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like right now. (laughs) And and, in a powerful uh, direct appeal to president Joe Biden, you and a group of over 275 scientists sent a letter to the president uh, calling on him to urgently ditch fossil fuels and lead the country to a renewable energy transition. But unfortunately, the truth is that right now Joe Biden is doing the exact opposite Instead of, transi- instead of transitioning us to clean energy, he's actually ramping up U.S. oil production as we speak. And in his first year, he approved more new drilling permits on public lands than Trump did in his first year. Peter, what do you say to Democrats who continue to ignore the science and allow their party to engage in the same destructive climate abuse and chaos as the Republicans?
1: So I would say that the kindest thing that you can do for your party, the kindest thing that you can do for your children, the kindest thing you can do for the entire earth, is to actually call that out. Put aside the tribal politics for once and say, like, you know what, this, this, he's he's our guy, he's on our side, but this is absolutely not the right thing to do. Um, you can't just continue enabling, 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 and then allowing them to kick the can down down the, the road, you know, to to say these bullshit things like net zero by 2050 which frankly in my opinion will get us all killed okay so um it's time to take a stand um i know yes the republicans are even worse we all get that we agree we, we agree with that but really in the long term i think this this is going to take the democratic party down this is going to take everything down right it's going to take our whole planet down um if if the democrats if the biden administration are Uh, expanding the fossil fuel industry as fast or faster than the Republicans, then it doesn't really matter what they're saying. It doesn't matter that they're saying uh, that they listen to the scientists because they're not listening to the scientists. That was our second open letter to Biden, by the way. Like we're getting kind of tired of writing these open letters. And I wrote an op-ed in The Guardian like about a week ago, which was saying this exact same thing. We are being ignored. And that's why we're starting to engage in civil disobedience. We're desperate. We're terrified. We're climate scientists. No one's listening to us. We've been trying and trying for decades to wake everybody up and and no one is listening to us. And so we're getting desperate and we're starting to do civil disobedience. And I, um, I have a feeling based on this action on Wednesday that it is going to wrap up. You know, it's always depressing when some good activism gets started and then it kind of fades away. Like COVID was really, really tough on the climate movement, to be honest, you know, uh, checking in with my fellow co-activists. We all agree that, you know, the last few years has been brutal because we missed being face to face and it made it so much harder to do any actions. But this time I do think that we are terrified enough and the social norms are shifting just enough, you know, enough but a large enough percentage of the population is starting to get it, that that provides this kind of like social cover uh, and encouragement. It's like extremely hard to do this stuff. The the more society is on board, right? The kind of less courage it takes to do civil disobedience. Um, And then you can start pushing the boundary more and more, right? Like as an activist, it's critical that you push the limits and that you make yourself uncomfortable. If you don't have any butterflies in your stomach, you're probably doing the activism wrong because that means you're still really socially comfortable and pushing those boundaries. So, so, yeah, we're, you know, I think it's absolutely insane that I could understand if President Biden was like, um, you know what, like this whole Ukraine thing is crazy, Putin's being a total asshole, and um, we need to use the, the National Reserves. We're going to have to ramp up fossil fuels a little bit in the short term But we're going to do that within a framework of rapidly, rapidly ramping down fossil fuels. Here's my roadmap for doing that that year over year. Here's what we're going to do. So I I hate having to ramp up fossil fuels right now, but it's only temporary. We're going to keep focusing on the climate crisis. He is not saying that, not even close. He's just saying like, we're going to ramp up fossil fuels. You're going to love me. We're going to lower gas prices. It's just, it sounds just like what a Republican would say. So, so yeah, um, Whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, uh, if they're burning the same amount of fossil fuel, we're equally dead.
0: Yeah. Well, and and providing one thing the Democrats do a lot is they provide lip service to a problem. Um, You know, a few years ago, I finally woke up and realized, like, providing lip service to to these systemic problems isn't actually solving the problems. You know, you you can get on stage and say climate change is real. You know, to pander for votes. But if then when you have power uh, and you lack the courage to actually stand up to the fossil fuel industry and and start to transition us away from these deadly fossil fuels and and towards renewable energy, if you lack that courage, then to me, you're no different than the Republicans. And in some ways you're sneakier because you say you, you say climate change is real. But then you get into power and you're governing just like Republicans do for for the fossil fuel industry. So it gets very frustrating to, to the people, I think, who are putting themselves out there and taking these these courageous steps of activi- activism like you did this week, you know, risking uh, getting arrested. Uh, and then you have a party that, that says, oh, climate change is real. But then <laughs> actually through their actions, you know, they do the exact opposite. They don't govern like climate change is real. They govern with climate denialism and, and continuing the status quo. And, and and as you've pointed out, the status quo is killing us right now.
1: So um, it, it breaks my heart. You know, I was a um, I, I don't say this that much, but I think, um you know, uh, this this crowd's a good crowd say it, too. I, I've been crying inside ever since uh, Bernie Sanders was defeated in the primaries. <laughs> um, <laughs> They was like I felt like he was almost like our last be- our last best chance to solve this through electoral politics, um, you know. I it's just a fact, you know. I was really concerned about uh, Joe Biden because he's been a booster for the fossil fuel industry and uh, basically a member of the fossil fuel industry, yep. benefiting from them financially for such a long, long time. Like his family's got deep ties there. His campaign was peopled largely like there's so many you know, members of the fossil fuel industry, like in his campaign, that I was aghast when some of the world's most prominent climate scientists were like, oh, we can't, like, we can't let Bernie Sanders win. It's got to be Joe Biden. Sunrise gave Joe Biden a D for, for you know, a report card for climate, which I thought was, ex- scientists were like, they couldn't believe, they are like, she should, you know, basically have an A, which was crazy because Bernie Sanders is... Um, climate plan was literally 10 times bigger and 10 times more ambitious than Joe Biden's. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, Bernie might, he, he might equally feel the prep right now, but I am hundred percent sure that he would be using the bully pulpit day in and day out to the perils. So important, right. To have the chief executive of the United States, the president, Using the bully pulpit, that has a huge sway on the populace and a huge sway on the global culture, and it's, if anything, right now the the bully pulpit is being used to boost fossil fuels, when which is like you said, exactly the opposite direction we need to go in. Mm. When
2: you when we talk about promises that are made and and seem subpar, like uh, you know, carbon neutral by twenty fifty. I feel like even when when the numbers sound right, like, okay, let's say it's by 2030 or something, it oftentimes feels disingenuous when it's, this is what our goal is, and we're going to allocate 1% of the resources needed to make this happen. So in your opinion, in your estimation, how much would it cost? What would it tangibly look like to get us to a, a place of this will Avert the absolute worst of of climate catastrophe is there like a, a dollar amount? is there a certain amount of investment in renewables that would appease climate scientists I guess and and let us yeah. all read a little easier
1: It's a good question again, I think like down in the gory details uh, the the kind of basement of the um uh, ip the recent IPCS report there is actually a lot of guidance on that but i am um, I'm again just not familiar enough with our report yet to cite the actual numbers um, but you know I again. It's just, um, I what I really want to see is a, a plan that gets us down as fast as we can. Um, so let's say maybe it's a 10-year plan. So so then, all right, maybe like just very, very roughly speaking, then we should be down 10% by 2023, right? And, and then down another 10% by 2024, just very, very roughly. Um, so, okay, so where do we get that 10% of fossil fuel reduction um from 2023 is it by like you know, removing coal plants and and building more wind and and, and uh, solar that's probably the easiest thing right maybe getting more electric cars so you kind of do that easy stuff first and then you identify the hard stuff that you're going to have to deal with in like 2028 to you know, make your goal of being completely off of fossil fuels in 10 years in 2029 2030 um and you start you've put a lot of budget towards r&d for those hard things right so you, you you use the bully pulpit you know you probably have a huge education campaign so you want to finance that like i'm talking like spending billions of dollars on billboards um tv ads to sell climate you know action to the public like it's an easy sell it's going to create more jobs like politicians love the word jobs, it's literally their favorite word right yeah. and so um Solving climate change, obviously, we have to transform our entire society. That's like jobs up the wazoo, um, and then so you, you do that. You start doing the easy stuff that we know how to do, and it's right there in the IPCC report. It's all the obvious stuff. Everyone listening knows it, right? It's building out renewables and electrifying stuff, insulating, uh, making things more efficient, and then you, as the culture shifts, and as you get you know sort of more solutions for the hard stuff, and as the climate movement ramps up. Uh, as the bully pulpit and education programs start working, then you can start dealing with some of the harder stuff like ramping down commercial aviation, for example, um, you know, dealing with shipping and manufacturing and, and building, uh, which, you know, uh, industrial processes, those, those things are quite a bit harder. So, um, I don't see any plan like this coming out of the white house whatsoever. And, um, you know, what was Bernie Sanders's amount, um, I think he did have an amount for his climate plan, right? Do you guys remember what that was? I think it was like about a trillion dollars a year, right?
2: Yeah, it was about 10 trillion over 10 years, I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how does that relate to the defense budget?
2: (laughs) Comparable. Yeah, That is
0: is our defense budget. Our defense budget is almost a trillion dollars a year. And and instead of blowing up the world and engaging in these wars and and arming other countries, we could instead be investing. uh, Instead of investing in bombing the planet, we could be investing in healing the planet and cleaning up the planet and and saving the planet. And it's just, when you look at the numbers, it is infuriating. Um, Peter, it's clear to me that the powerful corporations... Uh, the ruling class and both of these corporate parties who have gotten rich off supporting the fossil fuel industry are not going to save us from the climate crisis, if we're just being frank. So to actually make the transition from fossil fuels to clean energy, do you think it's going to take a mass movement and social revolution from the people?
1: I, I think about this on a daily basis, and I've been doing so for years and years, and I cannot escape that conclusion. It's the only thing that I think can work at this point, because, yeah, like we, have you know, I think for a long time, a lot of people were kind of waiting and hoping uh, and kind of counting on the humanity of those in power to actually take action. But the thing is, that's that's not how the sociopathic mind works, to be frank, right? right? So I think there's a there's a deeper problem here with how we organize as a, as a species. So um you know in smaller societies like a you know small group of like 50 humans it's i think a lot easier to to prevent to kind of laugh at the sociopaths and prevent them from taking over at some level. But in our society like the people if all you want is money and power it's you know, a large fraction of those people who all they want is money and power. That's what they're going to end up getting. You know, the majority of people have other priorities too. Like they want to have enough money to live, but they don't necessarily want to be billionaires. They maybe want to have friends and have fun and have a good life and maybe make the world better, right? There's a lot of values that that, that normal people have besides just power and money. But unfortunately in our society, the people with power and money tend to rise to positions of power and money, where then they call the shots, and they can systematically systematically dismantle uh, systems of democracy and systems of media, which is a critical check on democracy. Like, look at how much damage Rupert Murdoch has done to the world, right, just by creating these far-right-leaning media uh, machines that he has. Um, And look at, like, you know, this lobbying and, like, campaign finance contributions, we should just call it what it is. It's a bribe. It's literally just a bribe. Yep. And it's really pressing how cheap it is to buy a politician. Like if you're a billionaire CEO executive, you just, they must be laughing at how they can just give like, you know, hundred thousand dollars to this or that politician. And they're like in their pocket. Like it's so incredibly cheap, like how they like how, how much money it takes to buy these, these um, so-called leaders that we have. So, um, yeah, it's clear. I, I think it would be a grave mistake to kind of continue waiting and hoping that those in power will val- voluntarily relinquish their power and their money so that we can transform society. They want they're they're deeply invested in keeping the society the way it is and preserving the status quo. And and that you know they're they're deeply invested in nothing will fundamentally change. Um, and so yeah, the the given that given the fact that we're up against the fossil fuel industry i think we literally need a climate movement which is significantly more powerful than the fossil fuel industry full stop and um i think you know marching just hasn't been working like petitions don't work if those in power you know don't basically don't have the conscience right so um we need to make a lot more good trouble than that and you know, certainly more civil disobedience and civil disobedience from scientists is part of that. Um, I suspect we're going to have to go uh, a lot further than that. And I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like. But um, one thing I know about is the next 10 years is going to be an incredibly wild ride, both in terms of climate catastrophes and in terms of climate activism.
2: Would you say the importance of, of, affecting the the stopping of climate change it has to be collective on a global level not just what is the us doing i know we have higher rates of emissions but what are your thoughts on like how how much would society really need to change to kind of say look these wars cost a bunch of money but they also are polluting i think of how much money is being or how much oil is being burned to transport bombs to transport tanks to make those tanks move so could you like I guess what I'm asking is, it, will it get to a point where the, the climate emergency is so bad that we might finally see world leaders come together and say, look, we're suspending all wars, all petty beefs. We're focusing all our time and money and energy on putting the best minds together and trying to stop this. And, and what, you know, the other thing I think about, too, is, is you think about a country mm-hmm. like Venezuela that relies so much of their economy relies on fossil fuels. How do we, as a wealthier nation, support some of these countries that might have such a large part of their economy dedicated to fossil fuels? How do we help them transition without just having that economic hold over them and and screwing them over?
1: Great, great questions. Well, so much of the world's wealth is concentrated in the global north right now that I think we we do need and, and we owe it to the Global South to start transferring some of that wealth to them. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but that's, that should come in some form of like, they basically get paid to stop extracting fossil fuels, to stop cutting down rainforests, and we have to support them. Like we have to, if they don't have fossil fuels, we have to give them renewables so that they can actually live, right? For example. So I think, yeah, the, probably the climate justice aspect, uh, international between nations, it has to be somehow um, kind of reparations and substitutions coming from the global North into the global South that are designed to, um, to help the global South kind of leapfrog over the resource intensive and energy and fossil fuel intensive sort of history that the global North has engaged in. So that's one thing. Um, it, this is all new territory, So I don't think really anyone knows what that's going to look like. We have, but, but the, the good news is that, the early steps, the first steps we have to take are incredibly obvious. And it's like when you're hiking, you know, like you're, you're going up, you're trying to climb up to the top of a mountain. You can't really see the peak until you, you have to go up to the first kind of false peak and then you get there and then you look around and you, you get the lay of the land more. Then you go up to the next one and you look around. You can't, you don't know necessarily what the view is going to be from the very top until you start getting there and start taking those steps. So the good news is that we, we do know kind of the obvious first steps. I think once we take those, the next steps, which are less clear now, will become clear. And the steps beyond those that are completely murky now will start to become a little bit more clear. And then we just keep going. Now, in terms of, um, you know, how much social change will it take to kind of, um, I mean, by definition, that's what we need, right? Once we have the social change, we're good. Um, So I think it's either going to, it could go, I see it going in either one or two directions. All right. So I think the public needs to start panicking about climate change. I know that's not a popular thing to say. The climate moderates are, they're super insistent that we have to sugarcoat things and um, we don't want to scare the public too much because then they'll shut down. I completely agree. I think that, you know, climate Twitter is aware, at least some fraction of climate Twitter is aware of how serious the problem is. But I think climate Twitter is like, like one one thousandth of one percent of of like everyone on the planet, right? So I think that the general public doesn't fully understand just what an emergency this is, which is why you know one of the roles for the scientists is to start engaging in civil disobedience because it's kind of symbolic, right? It wakes up the public, like oh my god, the climate scientists are willing to get arrested. That means they they really do think this is serious. Um, so mm-hmm. um I think it it could go one or two directions, right? The the general public starts to panic enough. That even despite the corruption, climate candidates start winning elections up to the national level in countries all around the world. All right. And then once you have people that genuinely get how serious this is down to their bones, they are incorruptible in terms of climate. Right. Um, And then they would be able to start steering the ship in the right direction. So so that's one way it could go. You know, the public starts to wake up. They start to pass. Start, you know, the even conservative voters start to panic about climate change because it's so obvious, right? So that's, and that's, that's second, the second thing to say about that, that's why the media role is so crucial, right? So as long as Rupert Murdoch is brainwashing conservatives, you you know, conservatives aren't all necessarily evil people, but when they're brainwashed by Rupert Murdoch, it's like incredibly destructive, right? I can imagine people who are fiscally conservative, but who still. Want like better life for the working class, and who still want, um, you know, action on climate change. It's pretty easy to imagine that, but only if you defuse this toxic media that's like a huge part of the problem, taking us to destruction. So, so that's one path, right? We uh, uh, realize the truth of just how uh, incredibly terrifying. An irreversible climate breakdown is, and they're like, "Wow, we got to make this a top priority." Climate candidates start winning elections all over the world. Um, they start collaborating internationally. There's fossil fuel non-proliferation treaties. There's clear roadmaps that are reviewed at and, and an international, international level. Goals are met. And the 2025 goals are met, and we're getting that 10% or maybe more reduction per year. The path that, it can go, though, is a very very dystopian path where instead of the world leaders kind of starting to collaborate on climate and putting their petty beefs on hold, where instead fear uh, takes over, clamoring at the borders in, in the millions or the tens of millions or the hundreds of millions, and everyone gets really afraid. Authoritarians rise into power. You have dictators that, you know, um, make Putin look like a saint, right? Or something like that. And, and things just get worse and worse. You start getting wars over water, you know, like look at India and Pakistan, uh, maybe, maybe nuclear weapons are used. So that's the other direction. I think things could go into a dystopian, hot, like hellish uh, uh, um, world of climate warfare. So I really, really hope um, that it's the first. Uh, and I think that the climate activists are absolutely key. And that one of the, the darkest parts of our society right now is this movement uh, from Republicans, To mainly to um, to to paint climate activists as terrorists and to increase punitive measures and to try to clamp down on all forms of climate activism. When we the world, the planet, the Earth desperately needs climate activists right now more than almost anything. Climate activists are nature; they are the Earth protecting itself. It's as simple as that. What kind of an insane society wouldn't want those people protecting? the planet that gives us all life. Do we have, uh, do any of our listeners have a question? Uh, Let's see. No one's lined up. I should probably, I, I need to go real soon. So maybe just take one.
0: Yes. Uh, do we have a listener that wants to get in the queue and ask uh, Peter a question? Jason, come on in.
2: All right.
0: Me
1: yeah. See. Sorry. I can't spend more time with you guys
0: no no, no this has good. been great this is this is 45 minutes is is perfect
2: is jason in the queue right now no i was just hoping that oh,
0: okay. <laughs> he would he would i don't even know if jason knows how to get in the queue but i see jason down there and i would i thought maybe he wanted yeah, to. He would.
1: Was... I, I would like to do more q a stuff too by the way so i'm glad that we have the chance to at least do one question i know i like i tend to talk there we time, go so.
2: I invite Jason, do you, you want to unmute passionate.
1: yourself and ask a question,
0: or provide? Or, or...
3: Hey, yeah. Um, first of all,
1: hey, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we yeah, can hear, we you.
3: hear you. Okay, thanks. So, first of all, Peter, thank you so much. I follow you on Twitter. Your tweets are great, um, and uh, I've I've been copy pasting a lot of it to my um, campaign uh, Facebook and uh, and Instagram, and and I think you're right on track. Um, And I even made a tweet a couple of days ago that when I ran in 2020, I was M for A first um, and climate just like a little bit behind. But I think right now there's no doubt, there's no doubt with the IPCC reports that climate is is the number one issue. So my my difficulty in being a climate candidate is to convince, and I, I put this in the chat, but to convince people in the district. That we don't want these new industrial, like they're they're building an aluminum smelter in my district, Um, and you know they're they're uh, saying you know it's green, it's going to be much more efficient than the old ones, et cetera, et cetera. But but aluminum smelting puts like 9,200 times more um, greenhouse gases into the air than than CO2, right? So um, and and I'm not going to claim to understand the science behind it, but that but that's that's those are the studies that I have read. So how do we counter that with, you know, me running as a climate candidate and then saying, People need jobs in the district and that's what they are fighting. They are like, you know, the economy is such trash right now for most people that they that they're like, no, the jobs are more important. How do we go about convincing those people in the here and now that we can do better with jobs? Like there are better jobs than having an aluminum smelter because they say, well, it's going to be made somewhere. It might as well be made here.
1: So there's study after study that just shows overwhelming that like a full green new deal transition away from fossil fuels and away from these industrial processes will require innovation and will, re- will create more jobs that you can shake a stick at. So it's, it should be a really easy sell. That's why I think we, we really should at the federal level have a, um, like a massive education uh, program for climate, you know, advertisement education, kind of public uh, P- like PSA kind of, campaign with like the best people, right? Not not some like, you, you know, not people who are genuinely talented at messaging and at advertising to sell what should be a really easy sell, right? Because it's so clear that, again, like we'll have so many jobs and, and a lot of them will be better jobs, right? Like I, I don't, one thing I never really understood is why coal miners are so attached to their home jobs, because those are horrible, dangerous, Uh, bad for your health jobs, right? Like just really brutal on their bodies. So, um, you know, I think it's one thing that's really important. And one thing that really makes me mad, like, for example, at high gas prices, is that again, like the sociopaths in charge, they're still so hell bent on on extracting and taking as much profit for, for themselves and away from the working class, that we, it's really very clear to me that, to have climate action, we have to get that kind of thinking and those kinds of people out of power. And for example, like it, I think the reason the coal miners are are afraid of losing their jobs with the Green New Deal is because we haven't put like like a job training, like free job training, and you know, a guaranteed job of like equal or greater income in the green sector. Like that should be front and center with like all kinds of discussions of jobs so that they they feel like they'll be taken care of and they won't just be left to like die on the streets, right? And that would cost a, a tiny fraction. Like that'd be like the couch change for all the transitions that we have to make, right? Same thing with high gas prices. It's It's absolutely criminal that right now the fossil fuel industry and the shareholders and the CEOs are getting record profits because of high gas prices, right? We should have federal programs that ensure that low-income households, that working-class people are taken care of. Like There should be price controls, right, so that if you're, uh, uh, you know, rich people shouldn't get them. Like I do think there, there probably should be means-testing for energy price controls, but it's just, to me, an abomination that in a climate crisis and in a, a supply crisis with uh, the invasion of Ukraine, that the working class should be basically, that that should be used as an excuse to funnel even more money away from the working class and towards the billionaires. It's just outrageous. So yeah, I think everything we do, we have to gain the trust of the working class for the climate uh, policies to be popular and for them to be stable and for them to be sustainable through different terms, right? Um, And so always the working class and protecting the working class and making sure that the vulnerable uh, don't get left behind um, is absolutely critical. It's not just, that's not just like liberal Lip service, right? Like uh, they tried doing a carbon tax in France, and it, it didn't last very long because the working class rioted. They they had the yellow jacket movement, um, and and because they they couldn't go to their jobs, like they were getting like squeezed out of their livelihoods by the high fuel prices. So so we know literally it's just very pragmatic. Like you can't do climate action unless you take care of the working class, and that's exactly the way it should be anyway. So. You I think I need to go now, but that was a really fun conversation. We can do it again sometime.
0: Yes, Peter. Th- Peter, thank you so much uh, for for taking the time with us. And, and where can people get uh, more information about uh, this the the Scientists' Rebellion and and just your guys's latest uh, yeah. organizing efforts uh, for the climate movement?
1: Yeah. So yeah, I'm not a leader of Scientist Rebellion. I'm just a, a, like a really. Um, eager supporter of them. They have a website. I think it's just scientistrebellion.org, but you can just Google it and they have a a Twitter account where they post the latest information. So I think that's scientist rebel, rebel one. Um, But they're really, it's really easy to find them. And yeah, I hope that I I really feel like this, this kind of loose uh, organization of, I guess you could call them extremely concerned scientists uh, I think it has the potential to really move the needle, but I think there should be, you know, historian rebellion too, and um, you know, psychologist rebellion. I think uh, it's there's something kind of nice about having it be scientists, right? Um, instead of to focus it makes it kind of more powerful, right? But I, I'd like to see. I think every trade should have their own climate rebellion.
0: Well, Peter, thank you very much, and and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye, guys. And thanks for joining us on another episode of Unruly, everyone. And we'll see you next week.